Hello and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I am Jan Tier, your host, and I am very happy today because I'm going to go meet with Suzanne Hershey, the author of Faith, Food, and Family. Suzanne Hershey is a kitchen witch, vulva, working mom, and author of Faith, Food, and Family, which is available from Iconography Press. Hey, Suzanne, how you doing? I'm doing well, Jan. How are you? Doing great. We're here to uh, talk with you. I see I caught you cooking up something. It smells great. Yes, I'm actually just finishing up a pot of pasta fagool for dinner tonight. Let me just set it on simmer and it can uh, work its magic while we chat for a little bit. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy uh, hearth kitchen and to talk with us for a minute. We wanted to, I wanted to get with you and talk about Faith, Food, and Family. It's been out for a little while now. And life has gotten so crazy, but it kind of just delayed us. But this, there's always a good time to talk about food, isn't there? Absolutely. I can talk about food all day. <laughs> yeah, well, food not only is a necessity in our lives, it's also one of our great pleasures. And um, there's no reason why we can't have wonderfully tasting food, as well as food that's nutritious and serves the needs of our what we need for our body. So that's one of the really nice things about uh, your book is that while it's not a nutritional manual, uh, it definitely brings out having the fun and the beauty and the comfort of food and connecting us to ancestors and culture and our practices and our and the ones we love the most. Yeah, I, I feel like anytime we prepare a meal, we're performing an act of magic. And it doesn't matter if it's the meal or the cookies or an appetizer or a snack, which we have a lot of in this household. Uh, th there's always an opportunity for magic. And stepping into your hearth kind of puts you in a position where you need to be calm and you need to be centered and you need to focus on what you're doing. And it, it helps to block out the stress of the day, release that. There's nothing like, you know, dipping your hands in a big sink full of soapy water and getting your dishes clean to calm you down and, and give you some perspective. That's really great. Um, I don't mind doing the dishes. I just hate cleaning the grate that everything is cooked on because sometimes it gets cooked on there. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Cooking is anyway. And I just cooked up a big pot of pea soup, Ertwood soup, uh, split pea soup. It was really, really yummy. And I gave most of that away to my mom. But... Um, I had a little bit before we got to have our interview today. So I am um, coming to the interview with a belly full of comfort pea soup, which is very... <laughs> mm -hmm. It's perfect this time of year, I isn't it? I love pea soup, yes. I, I'm a big fan of soup and stew because they're comforting and they're satisfying. And they, they do make fabulous uh, fruit gifts because you can bring a nice... Tupperware of soup over to your neighbor or someone you know who isn't feeling well or is in need. Uh, and certainly at this time, uh, you know, what we're all going through in this country, you know, we do need to keep social distance. We still need to check in on people who need us. And, you know, making a big pot of soup and bringing it to someone you care about just to check in on them is, is a very magical thing. It definitely is. That's for sure. So, Suzanne, many of our people have probably, my, my listeners, have probably never heard of you before or who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you are an eclectic Norse witch, 
uh, as well as a vulva and kitchen witch and all of those things that are rolled up into that practice. How did you come about that practice? How did that spark your interest uh, as far as this path, the spiritual path? And what does an eclectic Norse witch mean? <laughs> well, as an eclectic Norse witch, I do practice with the Norse pantheon. I am Fulcher to Heimdall and Tyr. I also work very closely with Hel and Freya uh, because Kama and Michelle work with Hel and Freya. So when a, a god or a goddess is present in your household, whether you are specifically dedicated to them or not, you're still serving them. They're still partaking in meals. They're still a presence in your hearth. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I've worked a little bit with Loki and I spent the, the greater part of my life as a, as a fairly happy practicing Catholic. So when I left the Catholic Church, I kind of took Jesus along with me. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I feel like you can have that and, and find peace within your practice. Um, my family is Irish, so, you know, I go exploring in, in that heritage that ancestry, though I don't work directly with any of you know those gods or goddesses, mm -hmm. I, I guess part of part of the biggest part of my practice is when you have someone over for dinner, they they bring their gods and ancestors with them, and I'm always willing to welcome uh, and and serve those gods and goddesses in the short time that they're in my heart space visiting with whoever they're with, and it, and it gives you great opportunity to connect and to explore other paths. But the Norse path really is the one that, that has helped me step into my power. Uh, having Tyr in my life has really helped me gain confidence and cease calling myself a baby witch and, and step into who I truly am. Mm -hmm. And having Freya as a part of my life and part of my practice really helped me step into owning my power as a vulva and connecting with that and connecting with the land spirit, my puck wedgies, as I talk about in the book. Um, and, and really, I, I have never felt as comfortable in any other practice as I do in the Norse practice, but I also enjoy spending time with, you know, other practitioners and learning about what they do. This is just my home space, mm -hmm. my space to go, where, where I feel most at ease. And, and most in my magic. I'm glad to hear that because it's it's really great when you can find or when one can find the connection that matters most to them. And a lot of times that's coming from a connection through our ancestry. And as I, I say quite often, that ancestry can be of our direct blood lineage. It can be of our adopted lineage. It can be of our chosen ancestries, those that we choose to work with and once those ancestors open up to us and we feel those cloaks open and those hugs from people from decades and centuries past, it's really a wonderful experience, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. It, it is to have family, you know, living and family past. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. that that's so cool. I, so I'm, I have your book. And first of all, the overall thing about the book is, Man, you really included some wonderfully colorful pictures of your food. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love my the Betty Crocker cookbook that my grandmother gave me. It was one of those big three-ring binder ones that she probably got in the 60s. I don't think it was the original one from the 40s or 50s, but it's an old one. 
and all of its pictures are kind of in black and white that have antiquated. So they've kind of faded or kind of a little yellow, which they're still wonderful because it's such an amazing connection to my grandma. That uh, was her, a book that she gave me when I first went out on my own. And it was probably out of off of her shelf because she didn't need it anymore or didn't want to use it or she thought I needed it more. Uh, but your book has all of these beautiful color photos in it. And so that's, that is really an amazing, I mean, all of your photos are color from what I, what I'm flipping through. Uh, and it really shows off the deliciousness of the recipes that you've brought to life. <laughs> it, it was a wonderful opportunity with um, the press that Michelle moved forward with, with doing a color book. She, this was the first one we did and it was an adventure. Uh, and she thoroughly enjoyed that we had to cook through every single recipe in the book to photograph it. Yeah, that must have been a very uh, excruciating experience, right? To, well, maybe for you having to cook it all, but not for them to eat it all. <laughs> yes, they, they thoroughly enjoyed all the dessert section um, of it. And there's, there's actually, for example, the recipe for the chili chocolate biscuits with the bourbon cherries. Yeah. That was a brand new recipe that I had developed and we had to keep cooking it, doing it over and over and over again as I tweaked the recipe to get exactly what I wanted from it, both, you know, taste-wise and magically. <laughs> so they got to eat a lot of chili chocolate biscuits and chili bourbon. Oh, yes. It's, it's, it's wonderful to live with a cook, that's for sure. <laughs> it definitely is. You, the first part of your book really goes through a lot of different topics that you work people through before we actually get to the recipes, which I think is really cool because you touch on different elements of turning or not of turning one's kitchen into a hearth space, but of mindsetting a person's kitchen into a hearth space. And I thought that was really a nice and a very exciting way to bring that, that whole aspect of food into our spirituality and to connect it all to the gods, to our, the, to the, the beings that we work with and all of that. And some of the things that you, that you, you do is, is you connect the everyday things that we have and you show how they can be magical, such as the stovetop or a pot, a wooden spoon or an apron. And an apron can be like ritual wear, right? Like a robe, like most people put the sub, an emphasis on special kind of clothing that they wear when they're when they're communing or working ritual and an apron is that ritual wear isn't it and and what are some of the ways that you have developed how to mind remindset what is something that's just an everyday seem muggle thing like a stovetop to make it a magical space well, to start off with, the stovetop is the place where you set your cauldron. It doesn't matter if fire comes out of your stovetop or if the stovetop is electric. It is providing the heat you need to cook your food, but to also generate that energy, whatever energy that you are intending to put into the food. You know, I, I know because I work full time that coming home and cooking a meal after a long day at work can seem daunting. But if you make it part of your magical practice, it makes it less so. So crock pot or my Instapot uh, is a cauldron. It holds the food, it holds the liquid, it, it generates the heat and it generates the magic. Food is, you know, blessed and intended when it enters the pot. The pot has been 
cleansed, it's been well used, it's infused with that magic in the same way that a crystal or a deck of tarot cards are infused with your personal magic. Uh, that doesn't mean Kama can't use the crockpot. He definitely does. Uh, he uses the stovetop. He uses the cauldrons. He treats them with the same magical respect that I do. I just use them more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the wooden spoon is, is a wand, is an extension of yourself. You know, you don't want to put your hands in the soup. No. <laughs> uh, but your wooden spoon is an extension of yourself and, and a way to push the magic and push the energy and push the intent and your will into whatever you are doing. Uh, you know, my frying pans are cauldrons. Uh, I have many, many jars of spices is, is blessed and welcomed when it comes into our heart space so that the magic is there just ready to happen. You know, canisters full of flour, as precious as any bottle of herbs or magical water that you would have. And if you treat your ingredients that way, it just, the, the magic just continues to build and, and generate and heal. Your spatula is a wand. It, your knives are your alchemy. <laughs> Please treat them carefully. Don't put them right in the sink full of water. Yeah. Cut yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, tools deserve respect. They deserve to be cleansed. And, and that's what we do in our heart space. Uh, we, we cleanse, we prepare, and we make magic. It is, isn't it? And it really, the kitchen really can become that hearth space, can become that altar space. And I think that when we actually do take a moment to, such as when we're doing a, a meal for a god or a goddess that we're going to be working with, or for our ancestors, such as at Beltane or Samhain, or the, the anniversary of a passing of a special loved one, if you're doing a special ritual and, and creating food for them, and you're specifically going into a, a very magical space for that, turning that cooking adventure into that is really a special, special event. Yeah, this is a time of year uh, that is special to me, growing up as an Irish Catholic child. My mother always made boiled dinner, always made boiled dinner for St. Patrick's Day. She may have overboiled the cabbage a little bit, but she always made boiled dinner. <laughs> it, and it was a meal that all of us, all seven children came to and, and shared and gathered around her table. Her kitchen was such a magical place. Everyone wanted, wanted to be in the kitchen with mom when she was cooking. Unfortunately, Kanye will not eat boiled dinner. So tomorrow I will don my mother's apron. I save it for special, special occasions. I love to wear it, but I don't want to ruin it or spill grease on it. And it's one she only wore for special occasions. Wow. And I'm going stuffed cabbage. Hmm. And then for Kanla, I'm going to stuff peppers. So tomorrow will be a magical day that I know my mother's presence will be in the heart. And it, I keep my heart space clean all the time. I try to keep it clean as you would keep your altar clean. Mm -hmm. and, and it helps to, to keep that in mind, to keep your kitchen and your heart space clean when you're treating it as a magical place, you tend not to leave crumbs around. And I, uh, it will be extra clean, knowing that my mother may be hanging in the kitchen, uh, watching me make her stuffed cabbage recipe. I, I love how you share that you are bringing the tradition of your, your mother in the your grandmother and things into that because I think that big part of those special occasions is when we can connect to those cultural things or those familial things that became a tradition in our in our homes as we were growing up as our children and, and that we're passing on to our families and things. So 
for me, one of the cultural things being a Dutch person is that around the winter time, of course, is the, the pea soup, which we've called erten soup. And another thing around the holidays is, uh, especially New Year's, is we do these these little things called oliebollen, and they're basically deep fried dough balls. <laughs> And they're filled with fruit and apples and raisins, and I fill them with craisins. And they're these very delicious things that we used to only get at New Year's time. Only at New Year's time. And then you you take them out of the the oil, and then you dust them with brown or uh, powdered sugar. And wow, is that a treat. I actually know that little treat because my dear friend Diana is actually a Dutch citizen. uh, And she has a long list of treats that she would like me to learn to cook for her. That is one of them that is on my bucket list. So I may have to Skype you while I try and do that. I did learn to make struck waffles for her recently and burnt my fingers quite a bit. And they didn't taste quite like the ones that come in the package, but they were passable struck waffles. Struck waffles are delectable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially fresh off a stand in Amsterdam. (laughs) So there's... So I kind of bring that up because there's a lot of people that may not have that familial connection of something special like that, or they may not identify with a specific culture because growing up in the United States, a lot of our cultures have merged so much that sometimes a particular part of our heritage doesn't stand out in our families. So a lot of people, it's just become Americanized, which is just not wrong or bad, it's just kind of the way it is. When people kind of bring that up to me, I encourage them to create their own traditions or find a food that they really, really love and find special, no matter if it's from whatever culture, be it specifically linked to them or not, if they love something, then bring that in as part of their magical life. What do you think about something like that? I think that's very important. I I think that we can't just stand within one culture, our own culture, we we should taste food from other cultures. We should respect and embrace. I, I have friends that are Cambodian, and I have learned quite a bit of Cambodian cuisine. Mm. I have, you know, Kanla uh, loves his Chinese heritage, and I have learned a, a lot of Chinese, authentic Chinese cooking. But I also believe I can take something and adapt it to myself. And and I say that a lot in the recipes in the book. It, you know, if, if you don't eat meat, this is how you can make this vegetarian or vegan. You shouldn't have to miss out on something you want to try because you're afraid to cook it. Or it, because I have burned my share of rice. I have burned <laughs> my and And everything is a magical learning experience. I, I think one of the greatest things we could do is not right now, but walk into a grocery store and just let yourself wander to what draws you or to what you feel the god or goddess that you work with or your ancestors or of kith and kin are drawing you to. Pick up some random vegetables, go home, plug them into allrecipes.com and see what comes up and experiment with the magic. Experiment mm-hmm. with how different spices taste and feel to you and what really calls to you. I think we should step out of our comfort zones and and try new things 
and, and honor our own heritage. But I, I don't believe our ancestors, given the ability to try foods from different cultures, would have passed on that ability. And I, I don't think we should either. I agree. My husband, who trained as a chef, um, always says or talks about how he loves to explore a culture through its food. And one of his favorite programs was Anthony Bourdain before he passed away because Anthony Bourdain would go and try all kinds of local foods. And a lot of those things, I've watched some of those shows and a lot of that stuff that he ate, I'm thinking I, I, I would not, I'm not prepared in this mindset to think that I would try some of that stuff. But what an, what a, an experience to explore and get to know people through their food. Yes. Gordon Ramsay actually does a show now too where he does that. So there are times where I say, oh no, Gordon Ramsay, Suzanne is not doing what, no. <laughs> I'm not eating that, that's a no. And and I so admire Anthony Bourdain and his just beautiful worldview. Though every time I squeeze garlic from a garlic squeeze tube, I feel him scowling at me. Mm. He, did, he did not believe that if he didn't chop the garlic fresh, it was not garlic, but he also wasn't working two jobs and raising two small children. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's still garlic. Yeah. Uh, but I love that. I love that worldview. And I'm sure Craig and I could probably spend an entire Sunday sitting in front of the Food Network, which is, if I'm not feeling well, something I love to do, uh, discover new shows on the Food Network and uh, then go explore those recipes. There's some amazing, some really wonderful programs that you can get into to to explore that in food food programs. It's really a lot of fun. One of two of my favorite program food programs, and they're not on now, and they're very very old. One was the Galloping Gourmet, which took place oh. in the '70s, and just a delight. And anyone who doesn't know who the Galloping Gourmet is, just YouTube video it because I'm sure there's some episodes there. But wasn't he wonderful, Suzanne? You know who he is, right? Yes. Just, yes. just delightful the way that he would go through that. Um, at some point, I had stumbled across some links to the very, very beginning of Julia Childs's PBS videos. And what a delight that was to watch her. And she basically set the standard for what a cooking show should be. Yes, oftentimes I find myself in the kitchen when I think that Carla's not watching me doing my Julia Child impression, <laughs> like while I'm chopping vegetables with my giant knife. Yes. Because she's always about, this is the giant knife that you use to chop your vegetables. It is also the same knife you use to get your husband to wash the dishes. And I will never forget the moment I saw that and ran into the kitchen and asked my mother, do you use a knife to make daddy wash the dishes? And my mother said, honey, just go back to Auntie Julia and watch the TV show. That's right. While other children were watching cartoons, I was glued to Julia Child on PBS. Yes, absolutely. And that was what it was about, was enjoying food. And that kind of brings me to a little bit of a transition is, well, we talked a little bit earlier, we mentioned it earlier, we didn't talk about it, about creating a a meal for an ancestor or a god or a goddess or other deity that we might hold at a special occasion, such as an anniversary of a passing, a birthday, belting or sowing, things like that. But um, my thought was, why not cook with them through the entire meal, especially if we're going to do a meal to a god or a goddess, engage them through the entire meal as well as an opportunity to make the entire preparation from 
selecting the vegetables in the grocery store to preparing them to cooking them and even to the cleanup afterwards of inviting them to be a part of the process and the meal first time i decided to do that suzanne it was it was a really amazing experience it really changed things from the way that i used to do it which was i would just say oh yeah and today we're honoring our ancestors here's their plate and here's some of their here's some food for to set aside for them or the deity and i didn't realize how wonderful it was to create to make the entire food process creation part of the ritual that is that is beautiful it's absolutely profound and and i hope in ways we we all try to do that whether yeah. we do it unconsciously or not i i know that there's certain times when i'm cooking or if I'm not feeling well, and I say, I still have to go cook dinner, that, that I feel my mother's presence with me. Uh, and anytime I spill salt and toss them over my shoulder, I know she's laughing at me. <laughs> she's right there laughing. Um, and, and as I said, when I go to the grocery store, when I get to the produce department, I really, for the most part, let Freya run the show. And, you know, people talk about this concept, Karma talks about it all the time, this mental sock puppet concept. Mm -hmm. is, am I really hearing the god or goddess, or am I just hearing static in my head? But I know when I can feel her presence, uh, she she tends to gravitate towards certain fruits and vegetables. And, and occasionally, you know, I, I think, oh, here's going to come Freya, and Tyr will show up and say, aren't you going to buy mushrooms? I want some water chestnuts, so I want you to pick that up. I, and I pick it up and say, what am I going to do with this? He said, don't worry, we'll figure it out when we get home. I'm like, yeah, okay. You just, you know, when your heart is leading you to something and you can't just leave the god or goddess at the grocery store or your mother at the grocery store, you, you bring them home and you embrace them during the preparation of the entire meal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The creating of a ritual of food, you know, it can be for everyday meals, but I, you know, and I think that when we're going to create a special one, um, it's really a really amazing thing to do it for a special, special thing. And was thinking that um, one of the great things about that is just how close it brings you to that, that, that God or goddess or the ancestors that we're working with done. And I also say, and let them do the dishes with you. Because let me ask you, Suzanne, and our, and our listeners, when you're a guest in someone's home, don't you offer to do the dishes? Absolutely. And when you do, are you really just doing it as a matter of, well, I know they're going to say no, so but I'm just going to offer anyway, and I really don't want to. Because sometimes I, I do, I, I guess. Most of the time, though, I really want to help because what does that do? It gets me to spend time with the person in a close manner, right? And in a place where you can have that kind of almost that one-on-one -on -one time, like you said earlier, washing dishes in that meditative moment and getting things clean and and making things clean and to me spending time with someone close cleaning up that's a magical experience in and of itself whether we're in a magical experience or not when i go to my friend's house when she invites when she's in town and she invites me up with her husband and we go up there i love to do the dishes with her one because she's put so much effort already in dinner it's my part of saying I value that and I appreciate that. Here's my way of helping. And I just think that if a god or goddess or ancestor, when we're at a, we're in a ritual meal for them, 
and they say, I want to do the dishes with you, make that a part of it. It's such a special experience. Yes, it's, it's so intimate. You know, putting your hands in water it is, it, and cleansing something is such an intimate thing. I have to say I'm a little guilty when I have guests that I generally, if they offer to do dishes, I generally do my own dishes. Uh, when you make your kitchen your hearth space, you really, I, I have to check myself sometimes because just as you're working altar, you wouldn't want somebody to come in and touch all over your working altar. I can be a little territorial mm -hmm. about my kitchen and it's something I'm very much working on. Uh, welcoming people, I, I generally would welcome people more to cook with me, to experience the, the making of the food. I'm a little weird about the cleaning up, but that's something I should work on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although I often offer to do it at other people's homes. And, and it's, you know, when my kids were young and, and living with me, um, they, if they needed to find mom, they found her in the kitchen and they would come in and, and I made sure that they experienced the, the process as they got older and it was safe for them to do so, that they experienced the process so that we would have time together, but also so that they would not starve when they went on on their own and they would not have dirty kitchens. So, you know, I think that when you make that such a center of the household, it invites people in to practice with you. Yeah. And and it's okay to for your ritual to be solitary. It's okay to be a solitary practitioner and, and want to spend that time alone. Yes. But it's also okay to invite people in and practice with you. You know, we love to have people over and share meals with them and spend time with them. And and I've found that it it's it increases the enjoyment when they can be in the hearth space with you as you're you know, spatch cocking a chicken or, or uh, stirring up the beef stew or making biscuits. Yeah, definitely so. So let's get into the actual recipe part of the book. And, uh, this, this is a really, so there's so much stuff. And of course, we'll talk about all kinds of other things, but let's talk about food. I think it's wonderful because your recipe portion of the book is broken up into sections. So we have uh, like breads and breakfasts, meals and side dishes, and desserts and decadence. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things that I thought was really, really nice about this was that you wove a lot of your family into this, your family recipes, the recipes from your mom and your mima. And uh, I just thought that that was a really special thing. Now, did you happen to divulge any of these secret, secret recipes that you know that only get passed from mother to daughter? No. <laughs> well, there were seven siblings. So all seven of my mother's children got her recipes. Some recipes came from, you know, my older sister. Then my mother would make them. I discovered them in her her little uh, recipe box and and dug them out and cooked things that I hadn't had since before she had passed away. Michelle loves to have anything that her Mima made or find something that her Mima made and then present me with the recipe and say, please cook this, Mima made it. Mm -hmm. I don't think there were really any family secrets, though I, my mother's not here to haunt me today, so I can openly say that she would occasionally leave an ingredient out when she gave you a recipe. <laughs> and and I never really figured out if that was intentional or not. And, and some recipes, you'd have to be able to read hieroglyphics to understand what she has written down in there. I'm like, I really don't know how much salt is going in this, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, it was little things like a tad of this, a pinch of that, or 
<laughs> that's a lot of times how our grandparents our grandparents did things and you're just like oh boy okay a little bit of experimentation here yeah well i i often say yeah baking is a science yes it is wing it and baking <laughs> baking is a, is a bit of a science but cooking is, is a, an act of wisdom you just have to let yourself know how much oregano you want to put in the sauce and and i never measured the ingredients that went into my sauce before i always would just do what i knew i needed to do so when we needed to put it in the book i had to do the motion that i would do over a piece of parchment paper and then measure how much of the oregano i was actually putting in the sauce right yeah i still know i just go if you just know in your heart how much oregano you need to put in the sauce or whether you want to add some you know fennel seed to your sauce or you know you don't like the bay leaves it's really cooking is such an open practice there's just you know yes you need to brown your meat before it goes in the beef stew but if you don't like celery it doesn't need to go in there so there's an openness to cooking that doesn't always happen in baking if you if you leave out the baking soda the cookies are not going to do what the cookies need to do yep that's you know the mat and magic and science can work hand in hand that's that they can absolutely one of the the way the things that i like about your recipe style or the recipes that you've written out here is you you have the where it's from the ingredient list the practice being how to put it all together the process then you have the magic a section on magic what does that mean well you know when you scroll through recipes online you have to read through the person's entire life history before they tell you what to put in yes. to what you're cooking. So I wanted to avoid that and, and really put the, the magic, the options and, the, and talking about what god or goddess or where this recipe came from or how you can alter it. I wanted that to come at the end so that someone isn't overwhelmed by the recipe by the time they get to how to do it or what the intent was. Uh, and we also used the little symbols over the recipes so that people could get an idea of this is something that's generally a comfort food. This is something that's generally a passion food. This is something that makes a good fruit food, something you would give as a gift. And, and there were hours of debate over which was which uh, and whether you could actually wrap macaroni and cheese and give it to somebody as a gift. And Karma won that argument because he would give my mac and cheese to mm -hmm. people all day long if he could to make them happy. And, and for me, I felt you need to be prepared going into the process of making the magic as same as you would if you were doing a ritual work that you you need to have your tools ready you need to have your herbs ready you need to have you know so you would have all of your cooking implements and all of your ingredients and and know what the process and the prayer was going to be before you start and I, I think for me, I hoped what it would do was help people to relax into the process, to, to embrace the process and not be afraid to open the book and see something they have never tried to create before. And, you know, I didn't want them to say that looks too complicated. There's too many ingredients. I tried to keep everything very simple and straightforward and then come to the hug at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what this recipe means to me, but I want you to to make the recipe what it means to you. And and my hope is one day I'll start hearing back from people saying, I made these cookies and this is what you said they felt for you, but this is what they felt for me. And this is what I added to them. And, and it worked for my god or goddess, or it made my grandmother who has passed very happy. 
you know, I would very much embrace that feedback, that level of sharing. Yeah. Well, what's, what's great about the way that this book is designed is it's not designed as a three ring binder, so it doesn't lay flat or anything like that, but the way that it's glued together, it does kind of lay pretty flat and there's space that one could write in their own little notes around the recipe or the ingredients or the things that they do. So there's, there is a space to be able to write in your own alterations to these particular recipes and possibly make a little note or two or stick in a card from whoever it belongs, uh, however it is meaningful to them. Kind of like, it's almost like a food book of shadows, isn't it? <laughs> yes. And I, I invite the, the writing in the book. Please write in books. Yes. You know, I invite, <laughs> this book anyway. Please write in books. Not in, not in all books. This book. This book. I, I live with someone who at, at times we have to buy two copies of a book because I am an evil binder breaker because I will, I have one bad hand. So I like to hold my book in one hand and that requires you to really open the book. And it, it upsets Kamala if I break the bindings on his books. So I have my own copy of the book. <laughs> this is a book that you should open wide yes. and write on. And uh, a friend of mine who has the book and who has been working her way through the book has said, I'm afraid to show you the book because there's food splattered on the book. And there are notes written all over the book. And I said, oh, please, I want very much to see the book with the food splattered on the book and the notes written all over the book. I, I want to see that you know, you're know you living in those recipes. And I, I want to know how they're making you feel and if the magic is truly working for you. Indeed. So remember when I mentioned to the, you the, the three ring binder Betty Crocker book my grandmother gave me, my Oma? Mm -hmm. I have little recipes that I have tucked away in there. One came from a cousin who passed away uh, that he loved to make himself. Others are from my mom and others are from cards from people that I've met over the years that made wonderful things that I love. And there are little splatters and things <laughs> all over those things as well. Those recipe cards or those papers. And um, I love those because it shows that I've been using them and I've been connecting with them in a way. And that's special. That's very special. Yeah, I have some of my mother's handwritten um, recipe cards that I have considered, you know, copying from my siblings, like making a copy so they're still in her handwriting. Yes. And then have laminated mm -hmm. so that the writing will never fade. And so that when I drop the recipe card in the pot of spaghetti sauce, I don't ruin it. Mm -hmm. Or I, I tend to have, when you're you know, in the kitchen and you're baking, you tend to have flour all over your hands all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I often say, you know, I'm baking if there are two handprints on my derriere because I will wipe the flour everywhere while I am going. Uh, so things tend to get a little messy and, and messy magic is good magic and fun magic. Uh, so I would very much like to protect her recipes that makes sense. so that, you know, my and and their cousins will, will have those, but they'll still be in her chicken scratch handwriting that you probably don't even know what is needs to go in the pot at all yeah that makes sense then th that does one of the things that i love about the recipes that you've selected is that there are recipes that people would make or can make out of their homes there's a lot of wonderful recipes and a lot of wonderful recipe books uh, that are created and sometimes you think wow that sounds wonderful and the picture looks beautiful and delicious, but I know I'm just not going to do that because it's just, there's too much involved. But the recipes you have, first of all, you kind of say that they're comfort foods. So they basically are 
anything we can open up a cupboard or a refrigerator or go down to our local grocery or farmer's market and buy the ingredients for it's stuff that we don't need like really exotic or special things it's not to say that those are not great recipes but these are recipes that we can make ourselves at any time with a a minimal amount of effort by going to a, a market or a grocery store and i have actually open on my desk right now and postmarked on my or not postmarked but uh saved on my desk right now two recipes that kind of stood out to me <laughs> that that are actually two of my my go-to comfort favorites when i get a chance one of them being chicken and dumplings mm, mm. i love chicken and dumplings and my dumplings are not the noodle dumplings. These are the dumplings that you create a little batter for and you scoop out and dump in there. So they're truly dumplings. <laughs> and I think that's what this is. And the other one that I just happened to turn to and it has this beautiful picture on it. I was like, oh, I love that with tomato soup. A grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, How can you go wrong with a grilled cheese sandwich? Yeah. Right? Yes. And that is the grilled cheese sandwich that is Kamala's go-to if he's having a bad day. And I never thought that I would get him to eat a grilled cheese sandwich on a sturdy bread that had vegetables on the inside. But now, it does. <laughs> I gotta say though, I'm very, I'm very interested in the fact that you add grapes. Oh, oh, grape tomatoes on there. That's yeah. very interesting because I've never thought about putting a grape tomato or any kind of anything on the inside of a grilled cheese sandwich, except for maybe bacon. I mean, and <laughs> bacon is always good. I'm I'm a, I'm a carnivore, so bacon goes well with anything, <laughs> even chocolate. <laughs> well, my mother made, used to make grilled ham and cheese or grilled tomato and cheese sandwiches. Mm. So I love the tomato on the sandwich, and I understand the grilled cheese. Everybody wants the pole. You know, and if you want the pole and 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 that, then you you can leave the vegetables out. But for me to to get spinach into Kamala, if I can do it by the vessel of the grilled cheese sandwich, that's how I'm going to do it. If you can hide uh -huh. it with a with a plethora of cheese, then have at it. <laughs> yes, cheese and bacon make almost anything taste better. And if you put basil on something with cheese, mm. you will eat it. So yeah, yeah. So I just I just say that to say these are wonderful wonderful recipes and of course the pasta that or pasta fajol that you are making is also in this book yes it, it is a recipe that i had to hound my aunt eileen to give to me because she made it when i was little and would be in her home and it was something i loved but it was not something my mother ever made so i i hounded her and hounded her and she finally gave me the recipe um and then I started making it at home and it, it is definitely one of Kamala's favorites. And often I will check in with my adult son and say, what are you doing today? And he'd say, Oh, I'm making pasta fajol for the week for lunches. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he'll make the big old batch um, and with her own. And it doesn't, it's not like what you get at Olive Garden. And, and that's not like bashing Olive Garden. They have fabulous soup there, but it, it is, it is her own, recipe that she cooked in her entire married life for my uncle and and i was very happy when she finally gave me that recipe she never did have an opportunity to teach me to make managotti from scratch uh but someday i will take a class and learn to do that or find someone who knows how and learn to do that yeah because that was something else i loved of hers 
there's a lot of great recipes in here. And for anyone who doesn't have access to a grandparent or a mother's recipe book, this is a great opportunity to start with, with something that has a connection to ancestry and history. And a lot of recipe books out there are created and developed from people's connections to their families and their, their cultural recipes and things like that. And those are wonderful. And this is just a great opportunity to connect with things and food that we're familiar with. And I really just encourage people that if you have families, continue that tradition. Or if for some reason you haven't had that opportunity to have a parent that was able to share or pass on that food heritage to you, you can start now. It doesn't have to stop or it doesn't have to not exist. You can create those traditions with your, your children now or people that you consider your children or your friends and you can develop these recipes and you could take Suzanne's recipes. I do not think, and I'm sorry to speak on behalf of you and you can correct me, but if someone changes this and makes it to their own and they completely alter it to this wonderful experience that is for them, what a great opportunity to pass something along to someone that you care about. I, I think that's fabulous. There are recipes in that book that are, you know, a mix of, of ingredients that my mother used and then a mix of ingredients that my former mother-in-law used. And I fused those two powerful, beautiful women together to make it my own. And, and, you know, just as I don't practice exactly what you do magically or spiritually, and you don't do what I do magically or spiritually, we share things with each other, we learn from each other, and we make it our own. That's, you know, that's such a Norse perspective on things. Go out into the world, find what works for you, and make it your own. Uh, bring yeah. will and wisdom and love into what you're making and find your people. You know, I, I didn't think that my, 10 years ago, I would not have told you that my people would have fallen in the realm of very complicated Cambodian cuisine. Um, <laughs> but because my friend Sam is, is a sister to me, and there are things that she misses that her mother would make for her, I went and I learned to do those things for her. And I, I made them my own to the best of my ability so that I could love her through food and remember her mother through food. And I have a little picture of her mother on my altar. So anytime that I am preparing those foods, I know that Sam's mother is, is watching and hopefully approving. Mm -hmm. Occasionally I fail miserably at trying and then I get corrected. I go to people for help that know what they're doing. And, and we fail, we learn. And we try again. No recipe is ever a failure. It's always a learning opportunity, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Making pickled daikon was an adventure for me, and I'm still learning it. <laughs> yeah. it, it is, don't do what they tell you to do on the internet. Ask somebody who actually knows how to do it, <laughs> because yeah. because that was that was an adventure. I want to I want to bring up. I was just flipping through the book, and first of all, there's a before I go on to what I was about to, what I'm about to say. So there's a wonderful index afterwards of how to connect to the different recipes. So you have a wonderful in index in the back. Thank you for doing that. Uh, how to connect to, if I want a bread or a pasta or a stew or a soup, I can just turn to the index and say, oh, that's the page it's on. <laughs> we love that. But I was flipping through and it opened up to Nana Hersey's Italian Anise Cookies. 
it makes me think of a very, very dear person to me named Tina, who I used to deliver mail to when I was a letter carrier some years ago. She's passed away now. Every year she used to make these beautiful snowflake looking Anna's cookies. And she always made sure that I had a little stack of them. It's such a blessing to, to see this recipe in here because it makes me think of her and it makes me honor her because I only knew her for a few short years before she passed away of cancer, but she was such a vibrant part of my life. So it's great to see these things because those things help us keep the memories of people we love and adore alive. And, and it's such a blessing when someone can touch you with food, which sounds strange. Um, but to, <laughs> when we give food as a, a frith, you know, frith means it goes both ways. Frith is, frith is reciprocal. That you give her the gift of your friendship, and she gives you love through a simple cookie. And if if you ask my children what they if I say what do you want me to bake for you or bring to you, they're like make Anna's cookies, because she would bake those cookies at Easter and Christmas, but she would always save my kids a plate, especially for them that nobody got to touch. And I'm like, Mom, I can make the cookies. And she would say, oh, no, they're not Nana's. It's not the same. And that's the closest I can bring them to the memory of, of their Nana's, those cookies. So that's what they always want. I made a little note earlier that you had mentioned something about a deck of tarot cards. And I was a little bit like, excuse me, you know I work with runes. You could not have said <laughs> a rune? <laughs> Do you know that the initial concept for this book was that we and it could be a book down the line you and i might need to sit down and do it together um that the original concept with the book was that we were going to take each of the runes and assign a recipe to that rune Ooh, wow. and then create a deck of rune cards that would have the rune and the recipe and a, and a picture on it that you could actually use for divination wow that would have been awesome recipe card divination but then as I sat with Michelle and we started pulling out recipes of what we were going to do. We got way past 26. Yeah. And we thought, okay, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. So I, that was, the runes were actually the initial motivation for this book, the initial idea for this book. Let's do it this way. Let's make recipe cards out of rune cards. Uh, so, so maybe there's a book in the future. Maybe so. Interesting. Well, it just so happens that this was being recording prior to Ostara, which in North America, Ostara, it's Mabon in South, South, Southern Hemisphere. But coming up to uh, Ostara in North America or Northern Hemisphere, I happened to just turn the page and all of a sudden sugar cookies showed up. And there's some beautiful color pictures of some sugar cookies with icing and you've used them for runes. So there's a great opportunity to create a lot of stuff with runes or any type of magical symbol that someone wants to use with their cooking. You can always include your magic and whatever divination technique that you want to use as a part of it. But coming up to Astara, if one makes colored eggs or colored cookies or sugar cookies, runes are also a wonderful way to add that aspect to it. We actually still make Easter eggs every year, even though my children do not live with us. Uh, we still boil Easter eggs every year, and we Ostara eggs, and we still we will put either runes or bind runes on the eggs every time that we do it, uh, and make that part of the the process 
and and the fun of coloring Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. And those cookies will be made <laughs> come springtime. And, and we love to, to do the runes on those as well. Well, there's some really amazing, wonderful adaptations that you've done to the recipes. Some of them, like the cheese, the grilled cheese sandwiches, you've really pumped up beyond what a lot of people think of a grilled cheese, which is two slices of bread, some butter, and a piece of cheese by adding the basil, the tomatoes, maybe arugula, any other type of thing that one might add. And you've adapted them and, and done some really, some really cool things with them. The pictures are beautiful. The fact that you use all sorts of different cultures. I mean, you talk with Kanla's Chinese culture and Cambodian culture and Southern culture and American culture and European and African and everything that can be around. It's really an amazing um, wonderful opportunity to not only view the the world from ancestral and different eyes, but also through our ancestors. So thank you so much for doing this. It's a great and wonderful book. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm really so tempted, but I'm uh, I recently found out that I'm a, a slightly gluten intolerant. So my ability to eat things like dumplings and bread are so much more reduced and we're, we're, we're making different opportunities to change that. But uh, this chicken and dumpling recipe looks so good. Oh my gosh. King Arthur makes a fabulous gluten-free flour that you can use in those dumplings. And yeah. if you, I think if you add a little maybe baking soda to them, they'll, they'll still puff up. That's wonderful. Uh, so if there is, we have a friend that is gluten intolerant and I have adapted many, many of the recipes in my book so that he can have them. The rose water cookies bake up really well with some almond flour. And that's wonderful. So Faith, Food and Family by Suzanne Hersey. It's available from Iconography Press. Take it, adapt it. If it's a meat recipe and someone is a, a vegan or a vegetarian, adapt it. Change it over. Turn it into something that you can and write in that book and <laughs> make those those notations for yourself. Yes. Go to Faith, Food, and Family on Facebook and send me a message or you follow the page, comment on a photo, tell me what you did, tell me what you changed because I am always willing to try something new. Absolutely. I will have links to the iconography page where one can order it. It's also available on Amazon, isn't it, Suzanne? Yes, and barnesandnoble.com as well. So those are the places we can get it. I will link to Suzanne's Facebook page. And Suzanne, I am really thrilled that you took a few minutes to join us. I was trying to find the, the pasta fajol recipe to see how long that, that, pan, that pot has to simmer. I imagine <laughs> at a, almost an hour is probably simmered long enough. Do we need to get let you get back to that? Yes, I'm sure Kamala has shut the heat off underneath that plastic all. And and honestly, it just sits and the flavor gets better and better. Uh, we, will, we will warm it up and, and have a bowl. And I made him a coconut cake for dessert tonight. So he will be happy, happy. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us on Gifts of the Weird. And I look forward to continuing to uh, open this book and pull a recipe out now and then and be able to use it. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful time. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please leave positive comments on iTunes and other podcast distributors. This helps others to find the podcast. 
Please send feedback and ideas to giftsoftheweird at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at WeirdGifts, Facebook at Gifts of the Weird, and on Instagram at WeirdGifts1. Check out the show notes for links. Thank you, and hail the gods. Nothing but regrets to call my own